The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. I want to kind of just introduce a brief yet very important sermon series, um, which I've titled Family God's Way. Family God's Way. And if this is one of those series you think is talking about the husband and the husband's role and the wife and the wife's role and the child and the child's role, I want to implore you, think again. (laughs) Think again. Because Scripture does give us those outlines and it gives those outlines so clearly and in a way we will address those things. We need to address those things. But this is a series designed to look at our family in the place of society today and study how God's Word calls us to biblical living. I want to just do a quick survey before I introduce this morning's message. And perhaps if you feel embarrassed in any way, don't participate. Who here grew up with two, uh, two parents, a mother and a father? Who here grew up with a background where there was food on the table every day? All right. Who grew up with one parent? Who grew up without any parents? Let's do this. Who grew up with two parents in the home where one or both were away in the day for at least eight hours or more? Meaning both your parents were working. Who here grew up with sibling rivalry? Who here doesn't remember growing up the early days? Good. So we have an understanding of what life was like growing up. We, we in our minds, dear friends, are sitting here with different ideas of what families should look like because of how our culture, tradition, and our background have influenced those things. Amen? If I had to meet with you individually and ask you your biblical definition of family, I think at the end of the day we're going to arrive with a number of different answers. Lord willing, some very close to, if not exactly, the understanding of what God has designed for us. Let me start by saying the purpose of this series is to establish biblical families. Because I can tell you the demographic of our church family right now. We do have single moms raising children. We do have people in our midst who grew up with one parent or less who were raised by someone else other than our birth parents. We do have people in our midst that grew up with sibling rivalries. Let me summarize all of that with two words. Dysfunctional families. Dysfunctional families. Most of us come from dysfunctional families. And here's the thing. We won't identify or relate with that unless we examine what the Bible says a family should look like 
and we weigh our family life with that. I always believed the family I came from was a godly family. It was a Christian home. We had Bibles in the house. Amen. That's as far as it went. (laughs) We went to church fairly often. Did we have sibling rivalries? Yes. Did our parents fight? Yes. Did they reconcile in front of us as children? No. But I thought that that was a Christian family. When someone pointed out, dear brother, that's a dysfunctional family, I said, how dare you? My family loved Jesus. That doesn't make you not dysfunctional. So I had to examine my heart. I had to examine my past. Dear friends, I'm thankful for how the Lord has used that to bring us to this point today. You see... The world has been feeding a rope to the concept of family. A rope to hang itself. Society today wants to kill family. Satan's plan from the beginning was to kill family because in doing so, the promised seed would never arrive. Do you follow Heck, we have a dysfunctional family from the beginning. Don't think it's a new idea. So this rope has been fed to society surrounding the concept of family. Satan's schemes is to destroy the family. And this has been going on for years. And dear friends, it's become easier. Because those schemes are developed through media. And how? By portraying sexual sin. By portraying abortion. By portraying homosexuality. Divorce. The list goes on and on. Open marriages. Society says these things are okay. How do we know society says these things are okay? Because it's on your Netflix account. It's on your Amazon Prime. It's in the novels. Lord willing, not on your shelves. It's there. It's there. There's a prominent feminist author who wrote in a book that family must go. And here's her motivation. Family oppresses and enslaves women. A member of the National Organization of Women has made it her life goal to eliminate all sex All marriage, all motherhood, and all love. She says that marriage is legalized servanthood. That family relations are the basis for all human oppression. I pray for her salvation. I don't believe she's come from a home where somebody loved her. This is somebody who is upset about something. This is demonic. Friends, there is a trend that has been growing over the last number of years to destroy family. This trend exists through husbands and wives who aren't fulfilling their biblical roles. Through the 
dominance that exists where television rules the day in the home. Kids and parents are fighting for the remote. It's come through the chaos of moral confusion. We see it today, by the way. You're not allowed to say what gender your child is. They need to decide. And where they wear a dress as a little boy, suddenly they become a girl. Friends, we live in a world that wants to disable family. It wants to destroy its integrity. It wants its members to suffer such crippling emotions that family as a whole becomes intolerable to society. How sad is that? And friends, we are marching down this road. We're sprinting down this road. I ask, what does this tell us about the future of family? I'll tell you this much. The quality of family life will continue to deteriorate unless something changes. See, if if nothing changes, it will produce a society with a higher frequency of mental illness than ever before. Look around you, my dear friends. We have now, and we can say it's because medicine has advanced, because technology has advanced, but we have now a record high of people who have been diagnosed with some or other mental illness. Where does that come from? It's a degrading society. Yes, some of it is medical. Some of it has a lot to do with our makeup and and, and how we were born. A lot of it has to do with the society surrounding it. Friends, mental illness is an illness that is characterized by a lack of self-control. This is why we see a trend with crimes of violence on the increase. Why suicide is on the rise. Why sexuality has become more and more unlimited and separated from family and from emotional connection. So there's no question about it. Family is under under attack and more so is the Christian family. The world wants to redefine family in its own terms. We are busy watching a generation of young people rising up that have no socialization skills. Because it's this. We're seeing discipline leave our homes. And unless we do something about it, the family will be destroyed. And I'll tell you something this morning. Once the family has been destroyed, society will be destroyed. There will be nothing left. But here's the thing, and this is what God's Word tells us, and this is why we are here this morning. Family is still the heart and soul of human society, and family, as it is defined by God, 
is ordained by God. Established through God. And how is that? Marriage. In marriage, what does the covenant say? What God has joined together, let no man separate. Welcome to this brief series. <laughs> this morning is just an introduction. We're going to get into a lot of practical aspects. But this morning I want to deal just with an overview of where this is coming from. And how we need to approach it. Let me start by saying this. There is a period of time between the ages of 6 and 12 when everything is foundational. When you look at, at a pattern of life in these years, 6 through 12, um, this is where your child will either become antisocial in their behavior or they will socialize in a normal way. In these years, we can almost see um, will our children develop learning abilities or will they not favor a book as much, right? And unless we cultivate that heart, unless we cultivate those minds, it'll just remain on a, de a decline. Let me go and, and kind of prove to you that everyone agrees that this is a nurturing age. In fact, a lot of people would say it's the age between 4 and 14. 4 and 14. That if a child is to come to salvation, this is most likely the age gap a child will come to salvation. Now, this is also the prime age for children who visit public libraries in the U.S. By the way, if you don't know this, if you, there are communities that have um, reading times in the library where you can take your kids to the library and somebody will be sitting there reading a book and they will be gathered as a group just sitting there and listening. This has been hijacked, by the way. Um, men dress as women would take those time slots in the library and would be reading pro-LGBTQ plus materials. What are they doing? They are grooming our children in those age areas. You say, oh, but my child won't be affected. Brother, sister, Satan has darkened your mind. The circular world has picked out this age gap, this time, because even in the case of Jesus, where there is an illustration of the fact that when a Jewish child reached the age of 12, he was ready to live under the law. By 12. So, God gives us in Scripture a pattern for how the family is to deal with these years. We see it through the Psalms. We see in the Old Testament how it's described. Families are seated together. Families are communing together. Families are eating together. Families are praying together. And who is leading that? The men. Fathers in the house. When Israel came back from captivity and Ezra opened the book of the law, the elders said, we need to stop because the people were complaining and saying, stop, we need to go home. We need to do these things. 
we need to be leading our families. And they did that. They stopped. Everyone went home. And every man of the household led their families. And when they were ready, they came back and they said, Ezra, let's continue. We're ready to learn more. My dear friends, we need to get a grip on what God's Word says about family. And, and, and I believe portion of Ephesians 5 deals with this rightly. See, Paul's heart was on the matter of marriage. On the matter of marriage. I want to read for us Ephesians 5 from verse 18. Ephesians 5 from verse 18 kind of catch you in the middle of what Paul is saying when he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery or wickedness, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The first thing we need to talk about this morning is overcoming the world's influence. As a Christian, as a Christian family, we need to overcome the world's influence. We need to step away from what the world has been advertising and how we've ensnared ourselves to exactly that. Alright? You might wonder how the verses and the context ties in with family life. Paul begins in verse 18, laying down a very key foundation. It kind of just unlocks the flow for the rest to come. But in saying this, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. From this instruction flows the instruction to the wife. The instruction to the husband, the instruction to the children, the instruction to parents. This portion of scripture lays down so many foundations for any successful marriage, for any successful relationship that leads to a biblical family. Here's the thing though, if you just pick up the book of Ephesians and read this verse, you go, what does this have to do with anything? Why would Paul contrast drunkenness with being filled with the Spirit? Because when a person is drunk, they lose control of themselves. Are you with me? They wander out of control. Being filled with the Spirit means I give control over to Him. It's not that He possesses me, but it's that He leads me. Maybe this context helps out a bit more. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. So it wasn't just one church. There were churches in Ephesus, in Asia Minor, right? So he writes to these churches. And this is what you need to understand. Ephesus specifically was dominated by the Greek culture called Hellenistic the Greeks believed in what we call today Greek mythology. All the 
Greek, the, you know, the gods, Athena, Zeus, all these gods. This is their religion. This is what they lived by. So Paul writes to Christians who live in that context. Many who have been saved from that very context. So let me get into it. The Greeks believed that the great god Zeus had given birth to a son. I know it's not, it sounds so strange, but it shouldn't sound strange today, right? When you read this um, 2,000 years ago, you're scratching your head and you're saying, how does a man give birth? Biologically, nothing's changed, but a lot of people look like a man and they give birth. So there's that. Listen up. The people believed that the child was actually snatched from its mother's womb. Um, Simile, who was a normal human being, um, shared this relationship with Zeus, the god. Now, when she inquired that he reveals his glory to her, his glory supposedly becomes so hot, so magnificent, that her mortal body cannot stand the weight of his glory. And she, she begins to cremate. It's strange talking about this. She begins to cremate because she's burning from this glory of Zeus. And Zeus can't get close to her because this glory is destroying. Yet he found the baby that she was pregnant with. And mythology continues to say that as she became incinerated, in order to preserve the child, he wasn't ready to be born yet. He took it out of her womb and put the child in his leg. He had an opening in his leg. He put the child in his leg, sewed up his leg, until the child was ready to be born. People believe this, just FYI. And so when the child was ready to be born, um, obviously that, that happened. Stick with me. This infant was destined by Zeus to be the world ruler. Right? He was born from Zeus's thigh. Then what happens, according to mythology, you're wondering, why are we doing this? I'm going to get to the point. According to Greek mythology, this baby was kidnapped by the envious Titans. And so, Titans in Greek mythology is called the sons of the earth. They took the child, they tore the child limb from limb, they cooked the child, they ate the child. Zeus found the heart of this child and according to mythology, revived him and this child was re reborn um, Diosthenes. Diosthenes. So, Zeus then killed all the titans with lightning, burning them all up, and out of these human ashes comes their creation story. How man was created. It's pretty wild. People believe it, by the way. Some still believe it. Let me get to the point. Diosthenes, according to Greek mythology, spawned a religion called the Diocesan cult. It was a depraved form of religion, but it was popular. 
The worshippers committed murders. They engaged in, close your children's ears if this is a discussion you want to have with parents, as parents with your children. I'll give you a second to do that. The worshippers committed murders. They engaged in sexual orgies. And at the heart of all of this was drunkenness. Drunkenness. Remember, these things would start off at a feast where it's eat, drink, and be merry. And they would get so drunk out of their minds that children were laid on a sacrificial altar. And as a way of kind of, I don't know, kind of ceremonizing this whole thing, they would engage in sexual orgies. But why did they have these feasts, you might ask? They lived in the flesh. They wanted to live out their desires. They wanted to live out their frustration. So they did this by dealing with their restraint. They did this with, by dealing with their normal feelings of guilt. They were dulling their senses. And what does drunkenness do? It numbs the mind. It numbs consciousness. And this is how they would kind of just deal with guilt, deal with, deal with fear, deal with anxiety. They believed that drunkenness was simply the door into happiness. The door into religious expression. Drunkenness was the key to worship. The more drunk they were, the more likely they were to get into these horrifying acts. Friends, this is demonic. So go back to verse 18. You read verse 18 in that context when Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine. You say, Amen. Because it leads to false worship. It leads to wickedness. And so he says as a response, But you, dear Christian, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, produce the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to commune with God, be filled with the Spirit. Colossians 3.16 tells us to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in you. So when the Word of God dominates your life, how do you respond? With obedience. It's the same thing as being controlled by the Spirit. The word obedience gives a, a connotation that you are Literally, it's your will to do what is expected of you. So obedience to the Word, as a result, means being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's not a mystical experience. I don't know. I still don't know how we get this wrong. Being filled with the Spirit is not a mystical experience. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, what do we see happens in the, in the book of Acts in the early church? People are speaking languages that are understood. Prophecies were being shared because the Word of God had not been revealed yet. People were being saved. People were giving their lives, giving away their possessions. And all of that was an act of worship. So, what does this have to do with today's society and a biblical family? i tell you this much. Society has no hope. You can't say, but I need, to, you know, I need to live in this 
degraded neighborhood because I'm the light that shines. How are you shining your light? Are you engaging with your neighbors? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you letting the kids come over so you can witness to them? If not, you're not changing that neighborhood. You're not changing society. And at the end of the day, Christ is the only one who changes our hearts. There's no hope for society because society is unregenerate. They don't know God. Romans 1, they don't want to. They want to know God. He said, but pastor, how do you know this? Look at Romans chapter 1. What does it say? The gospel has the power to do what? To save. Then Paul continues verse 18. That there's a thing called general revelation. That God's creation condemns those who does not want to believe then from verse 21 onwards what does it say those who are engaging in their sins those who are applauding each other's sins don't want this gospel we look at what happened this week praise God if you've been following Roe v. Wade if you have no idea what that is, when you get home, Google it. Roe v. Wade. Every state in America was fighting to regulate for themselves whether abortion is legal or illegal. But what did the state constitution want? No. We regulate that. Praise God. They lost that. And every individual state now governs and regulates the abortion bill and by God's good grace majority of states are are making it illegal to have an abortion amen simple how are we applauding that that's the problem that's the problem we we should be applauding that we should be thanking God because now finally after decades the worst Holocaust, by God's grace, is hopefully coming to an end. The Holocaust of abortion has taken more lives than any tyrant that has existed. That should blow your mind. And when it comes to the medical ethics and all those things, they're dealing with that. They're dealing with that. But by God's good grace, man, if it's not for the Spirit, nothing is changing. And so we need to be pursuing a marriage relationship and a, and a kind of family relationship that's built on a redeemed life that is led and powered by the Holy Spirit. You might say, Pastor, but how, how do we do that when we have fatherless families? Or parentless families how do we do that when when one spouse is a Christian and the other one isn't we're gonna deal with that we're gonna deal with that now secondly this is the last point I want to share with you we'll get to a close from verse 19 this is what Paul says addressing he says be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the lord with your heart that's worship 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, friends, where there is a life that's devoted to the Word of God and obedience to the Word of God, then there is praise. We don't praise God because we're not in Him. We're not in His Word. We're kind of numbing ourselves that when something good happens, such as Roe v. Wade, we go, meh. That doesn't affect me. It does. It changes a whole society. Paul says, as a result, when, when we are devoted to the Word, as a result, we have a life of praise that comes from a heart that is filled with joy. If you look at a person who's obedient to the Word of God, listen to this. If you look at a person who's obedient to the Word of God, you will see a positive, worshipping person whose heart is filled with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I'm not saying their life is good. I'm not saying their life isn't without trial. I am saying this person has come to terms in relation to God's Word that all these trials, all these temptations are part of life, yet I choose to obey God and therefore give thanks to Him and therefore live a life that responds in worship. That I'm happy when I see my neighbors prosper under God's gracious hand. That's what this means. Verse 20 adds, giving thanks always and for everything. Giving thanks always. Man, we need to write this on our foreheads. We so seldom rejoice. We're just looking at the hardship, the trial. Things aren't the way I want it, so I'm grumbling and I'm complaining. When God's Word says, give thanks Always. And then for what? For everything. Wait a minute. Are you saying I should be thankful for my trial? Yes, please. It's Romans 8. Romans 8. God is working all things for His glory and your good. But I don't feel good. It's not working all things for you to feel good. He's working all things for your good. Meaning there's an ultimate purpose. What is the best thing for you? The best thing for you is to be under the sovereign hand of God. Worshipping Him. Obeying Him. Because that, my dear friends, that is what it will be like for an eternity. Under the sovereign hand of God. And our response, according to the book of Revelation, is, is casting crowns at His feet. Worshipping Him. Witnessing the angels who are magnificent. Worshipping only Him. Powerful beings created. I mean, if we think about angels, I'm preparing for Revelation. As we think about the angels... We think, man, how, how mighty are they? How glorious are they? 
tell you this much, it takes two angels to wipe out a society. It's like, wow. Those are some powerful beings. And what are they doing? They are bowing before their Creator. They are worshipping their Creator. For a person to be filled with the Spirit, a person who is filled with the Spirit, when you have nothing but thanks for everything, for what God has done, man, I can assure you, you understand contentment. Again, I want to remind you that this is not a, a, a preaching series on what gimmicks can fix your marriage or what steps to take to have a restored relationship with your teenagers. Families aren't restored like that. There's only one way to cultivate a, a right relationship with anyone. And that is to be filled with the Spirit of God. To be filled with praise and gratitude to God. So that your heart is overflowing with joy. Which makes it possible for someone to live with you. And for you to live with them. You want to know why people have unhappy marriages? It's because they're living with a constant grumbling and complaining. God's word says when you are filled with the Spirit, your response is to give thanks for every, to give thanks always and in everything. You want to see your, your marriage change? Your heart must change. Yeah, but he's the one or she's the one. It's going to stay that way. It is going to stay that way unless you are filled with the Spirit, giving thanks for everything and always. Look at what verse 21 says again. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word reverence, I'm sure some of your translation says fear. It's not a fear of like, oh, if I don't do this, lightning's going to strike me. Reverence is a sense of awe, of respect. And friends, again, this is foundational to our relationships and to our families in a broken society. This is what makes meaningful marriages submission. Submission. It means to rank under. It's a military term. Saying, so Paul's saying, we are called to place ourselves under each other. We are called to a place of servanthood. And so here's what makes for meaningful relationships. We're submitting to one another. And you can only, dear friends, amen somebody, you can only do this when you are filled with the Holy Spirit. A lot of people say, but submission's hard. Are you filled with the Spirit? Are you filled with the Spirit? Because I can tell you what else is hard. Self-control. Long-suffering. These things are hard. But they are fruit of the Spirit. Meaning, I need to be filled. I'm not saying indwelt. You're, you are indwelt as a Christian. But are you filled? What does that mean? Are you giving control to the Holy Spirit? Are you allowing Him to guide you? Are you allowing Him to lead you? There's nothing mystical in that. I've asked so many people, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Was to have this power, you know, Say no to temptation. No. Being filled to the Holy Spirit means to submit to Him and allow His governance. 
allowed to be led by Him. That's what the apostles did. And what was the result? They spoke in tongues. They prophesied. They did miraculous signs and wonders. My dear friends, we're called to place ourselves under each other. It expresses the idea of humility. It expresses the idea of meekness, which is so basic to the Christian character, by the way. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 16. Submit yourselves to one another. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Submit yourselves to the leaders of the church. 1 Peter 5, 5. Submit yourselves to those who are older than you. James 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves to God. The idea of humility. You look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's how you have a biblical marriage. That's how you pursue a biblical family. But when it's me, myself, and I, brother, sister, making life hard. And I tell you what, this is what will shatter society. This is what will shatter society. Philippians chapter 2 verse 4 continues by saying, do not, me- do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Suddenly, everything changes. If marriages and families are at stake here, and they are, then these matters of spiritual commitment should be our concern. Society has a mindset today of being self-centered. It's pride. Marriages go like this. I'm going to stay with you as long as you give me what I want. But when I don't get what I want, I'm out. Today the emphasis is on individualism. The emphasis is on rights. The emphasis is on liberties and self-esteem. Oh, and it breaks my heart to see it on the shelves of Christian bookstores. Like this isn't fixing anything. This is only hardening our hearts and making us look more and more like society. I try to remember how far back this was. But in New York, you had an entire state's magistrate in standing applause when the abortion bill was passed that they could go almost to full term abortion. People were cheering. It's as if if the United States just won the FIFA World Cup. People were losing their minds with joy. That's the society we have to deal with, my dear friends. That's the society we have to deal with. And I want to say, and I say this, and it's going to come back to me. We have brothers and sisters who believe things are only going to get better. I don't know, man. 
Oh, but it has to get worse before it gets better. Society has always been on the decline. It's life in the church that can get better. It's life in Christ that will get better. I kind of struggle to sit around the campfire when I'm told, don't worry, things are going to get better. Friends, not to get sidetracked. If we take part in what society is selling us, when we play into it, when we buy into it, we will start to lose the family. Families are becoming a bunch of disconnected people who live in a boarding house. Each one is more interested in self-fulfillment than giving. More focused on material goods than relationships. More concerned about themselves than anyone else. And the Bible is saying, if this is the way you choose to live, you can kiss any meaningful relationship goodbye. Families, marriages, this is what is essential to society. This is what should be preserved. My dear friends, when a person desires constantly to have the family entwined, to have God glorified in our relationships, then you need a sacrifice. You need a sacrifice your self-pleasure for the glory of God. You need to sacrifice your comfort for the glory of God. And if that is not happening, there cannot be meaningful relationships. There cannot be meaningful relationships. Friends, there's a, there's a reason why young marriages don't last. It's because there's no depth. There was no depth to start with. It starts with a flirtation, and we think that this flirtation is love, and so we commit to it. But we commit to it without the foundation of Christ. Now, as I conclude, and I lead us in prayer, what I do want to say, and we're going to get into this as we progress, what I do want to say, because you, you might be sitting here thinking and asking yourself, can I be forgiven for where I am now in my family, for where we are, for where we have arrived? Of course. Of course you can be forgiven by coming to Christ and casting that burden on Him and trusting Him. It's so important. We don't do that. We don't trust Him. Trusting that He has forgiven you. And I tell you what, your broken homes can be made whole. They can. And they'll look entirely different than what they look now. They might look different already. Because so many of our homes are broken. But these broken homes can be made whole. And they can be made whole even while there are some roles not present. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord. Let's pray. 
Jesus, as we consider these truths, as we consider our own pains and our own pasts, as we consider what this looks like in view of your word, would you comfort us and lead us as we study your word each week, dealing with these situations? I ask Christ that you would go ahead and prepare our hearts and minds for change, especially where we've become so accustomed and so comfortable with the tragedy of how our relationships are today, that we've kind of grown numb to the things that have hurt us in the past and that continue to hurt us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that through this series and through this experience, you will make whole and bring healing. And I pray that you would give grace when those bandages are ripped off and those wounds may seem tender. So we trust you in this season now. In your name, amen.